Okay, let's prepare ourselves this morning in our usual fashion to study God's Word. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and during that time we have the opportunity to name privately to God the Father any unconfessed sins, which ensures the filling of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we can assemble ourselves together to study your word, to grow in grace, to be ready for whatever is next. It really doesn't matter as far as what our modus operandi is going to be, for we have our doctrinal routine, no matter what, consistently take in your word, which prepares us for whatever is next. We also recognize, because we have studied eschatology and prophecy, you have already won the victory. Now it's just a matter of time till we share that victory with you. So we pray that you will help us to focus on this message this morning. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you noticed in your bulletin that I do know that it's Father's Day. So happy Father's Day to all you fathers. I have an insert that is in the bulletin. Uh, if you didn't get one, I have some up here that you can get before you leave. And actually, this says Father's Day, Country Bible Church 2010. These are the notes of a Father's Day message I gave 10 years ago. And nothing's changed. <laughs> At least my notes haven't changed. And still, what I think is information that would be beneficial for the fathers out there, and the wives as well, uh, to focus on. You know, it's, for most, it's easy to become a father, but it's a lot harder to be a good father. I wish I had my um, scanner working. I would have put this on a PowerPoint. I'm sure back you in the back back there can't see it. This is a teenager. She's wearing uh, a T-shirt and it looks like boxer drawers and socks. She's got a, a big <coughs> boom box under her arm. See, this is pretty old. That was before the uh, iPods. And they're connected to her ear. She's holding this little boy by the hand and he's got the remote pointing it at the TV. And he's saying, Daddy. And the, underneath it, it says, America's new two-parent family. Doesn't that say a lot? He's pointing the remote at the TV and saying, Daddy, and I wish you could see her. In fact, I think I'll leave that up here with this. So if you want to see it, you can. <clears throat> kind of gives the understanding for a lot of people these days of what fatherhood is all about. One reason it's hard to be a father these days is because the position of the head of the house, the father, the husband, is under attack probably more viciously than it ever has been before. Anyone can note that if you have a, a TV or if you ever go to the movies or if you ever read the papers or magazines or anything, 
It seems like fathers have become the butt of jokes these days. But they are considered buffoons that would be uh, fortunate if they can uh, make it to work and back without getting lost. The children take pot shots at him. And this is part of a designed attack in order to reorganize the family really to where usually it's the children that are in charge. And you see that everywhere you go these days. And for you fathers, I want you to know that your youngsters, your children, are very much aware of what you do and what you say. They're watching and they're listening. When I was a little boy, there were a few products sold that really capitalized on that fact that the little boys wanted to be like their daddies. I remember when my dad was shaving back then, they had the razor that you would you would twist the bottom and it would open up and you would take a razor blade and put it in and close it up. And have a, you know, the kind of soap that you uh, have a brush on, you put it on with a brush and then you, you shave like this. Well, in most toy stores, they had a little plastic um, razor. Well, it was it's called a razor, but it didn't have a razor blade. It looked and, and, and functioned like a regular razor blade, like a razor, I mean. You would... You would uh, twist the bottom and it would open up at the top and they had little cardboard razor blades. looked just like a double-edged razor, a razor blade, and you put it in the top and close it up. They had a little brush with it that you could brush your, your uh, soap on your face. I guess I was about seven years old, somewhere along in there, when I got my first kit like that. And when my dad would stand up and he'd do all this with the brush and put it on, you know, I, boy, I was watching him like this, and he had to help me get the little cardboard razor blade in there, uh, but as soon as I got it in there, boy, I was going to town. And, and they, my dad uh, smoked for about 40 years, and his brand was Lucky Strike. Now, this would be hard for especially some of the youngsters to um, accept or believe, but back then, they had little candy cigarettes for the children. They'd have a little pack of cigarettes, and it was candy sticks, but it looked like cigarettes. And so whenever my dad would light up, you know, I'd go get my little deal, and I'm, you know, I'm puffing away. <laughs> I know this was in the dark ages, see, but uh, it was fun. I never did uh, graduate to the more expensive uh, toys. They did have little mowers that were made out of plastic. And you see the fathers out there mowing the little boy right behind him, you know, with the little mower like that. They're watching and they are listening. And so you have to be very careful of the example that you set. And I'm sure it's the same with daughters also. I saw, I don't remember what it was, a commercial or something on TV where the little girl saw her daddy shave. And... She wanted some shaving cream on her face. Of course, this is the aerosol type now. And so the dad put some on her face, and he didn't have a razor, so she took a, a comb, the backside of the comb. And when he would make a stroke, she would make a stroke, you know. And it was all over. He would you know, wash her face off like he washed his. 
You know, that is a huge responsibility, is forming the thinking of a, of a young child like that. And I was extremely close to my dad, but uh, over the years, I got to where I was a, a teenager. And when you get to be about especially 16 and you're a teenager, you're kind of hard to teach because you already know everything there is to know. And you're, today they would, I don't know if they still call this or not uh, cool. It wasn't cool back then. It was something, something groovy or whatever. But today it's not cool to show affection to your parents for the most part. And back then I thought I was too sophisticated and I was too adult to hug my daddy anymore. And so... Sure enough, uh, when I got to be about 16, I don't know exactly the time it happened, but it just quit happening. And it quit happening for several decades. And that's a shame. Later on in life, I mean a lot later on in life, I guess I was in my 50s. And we were, there was a room full of uh, family and, and friends, and we were leaving with everyone else. And my dad hugged everyone in the room except me. And he said, well, I wonder why I don't hug you and you don't hug me. I said, I don't know. He said, well, why don't we remedy that? And so I gave him a big hug. He hugged a lot after that. Look forward to it. I was up in Arkansas, and I was visiting a friend there, and we were playing volleyball, and there was a whole family. Uh, it was a homeschool family, and they had a church that was a fairly small church, and <clears throat> the children had to leave, and uh, they had somewhere else to go early, and it w- we were in a, a, a gymnasium, and when the children left, of course, the girls went and hugged their daddy goodbye. And the teenage sons, there were two of them, went and hugged their daddy goodbye also in front of everyone. And I just, I thought that was about the greatest thing that i ever seen. So, for any young men that are here, any teenagers or any, any sons, period, it's never too early and it's never too late to hug your dad. And you never know, if you haven't made that a practice, it might be the best Father's Day gift you could possibly give him. He might uh, appreciate that more than anything else, um, more than soap on a rope. (laughs) I don't know if you all remember that one. Um, That's one of the hard things of being a dad is getting soap on a rope and act like this is one of the best presents you've ever had. What do you do with soap on a rope? I mean, you can't wash with it. The, the rope gets in the way. <laughs> Use it as a... Well, anyway. Um, <laughs> I can remember my dad uh, spending time with my dad. That's what, one thing. I don't care what you do with your, young, with your children. You cannot replace spending time with them. And especially for fathers and their sons. I think... A father needs to take his son out and 
show his son how to, how he interacts with other men. There was a, a time, I guess I was about 10 years old, and my, just my dad and I went fishing in San Leon. We lived in Houston, so it was about an hour and a half drive. And on, on the way there, he taught me two songs. And I still remember them. I'm not going to sing them to you. You might know one of them. It's called Mersey Dokes. Y'all know Mersey Dokes? Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, okay, I'll sing it for you. Mersey Dokes and Dokes and Dokes and the Lambsy Divey, Kiddly Divey too, wouldn't you? Now, when my dad said, I thought he was singing a foreign language. And I thought, oh, that was, that was just wonderful. And then he broke it down and taught me, mares eat oats, and does eat oats, and little lambs eat ivy. A kid will eat ivy too, wouldn't you? And I thought, well, he deserves a Pulitzer Prize. <laughs> I mean, I've always thought he, he walked on air. I mean, I just thought he was the greatest, but uh, that was, I don't know. 50-something years ago, and I still remember that. I still remember exactly where we were on the road on the way to San Leon, and I still remember that song. And, no. <laughs> oh, I remember it, uh, but I'm not going to sing it. It's, uh, let's see, what I, the name of it is uh, Burgundy, I believe. It's a, it's a, operatic type thing and uh, I'm not going to sing it for you now maybe some other time but um, anyhow uh, it took him the whole time the whole trip to teach me those two songs I was not a fast learner it only took me about half an hour for Mersey Dotes and the rest of the time was this uh, uh, Burgundy the end of the song is maybe one reason I, I uh, was uh, remembered it and was so fond of it because there's no way that I would ever say a curse word in front of my dad. I knew better than that. Remember that soap on a rope? It doesn't taste very good either. So, uh, <laughs> anyhow, uh, but I, <laughs> I could legitimately say a word in that song because the last three words to that, ver to that song is five words. And to hell with Burgundy. <laughs> So, I could sing that song and say a word. and I guess it was about, I don't know, eight years ago or so, I asked my dad, I said, do you remember teaching me these two songs on the way going fishing that time? He didn't remember. So, sometimes it's the little things that a father does that the children relish the most. And you never know what those little things are. They can be a cherished memory or they can be something that they'd really rather forget. So, uh, again, I encourage you fathers to spend the time with your children and remember they are always learning from you. And they are learning either that which is good or that which is not so good. And I'm proud to say that we have some wonderful fathers in this congregation. And I'm not just saying that as, through prejudice. But I, we do. We have some fathers that I think are wonderful. They spend time with their children. They're the uh, leaders of their households. And they uh, care 
protect their children, and they're rearing them in the knowledge of the Word of God. They're doing great jobs. Uh, I don't know where they are this morning. <laughs> no, there's many of them here, but we have a lot of fathers missing today also. So see what happens when you miss. You get complimented and you don't even know it. So anyway, my hats are off to the fathers. You still have a, a job as long as your children are alive. It, your job doesn't stop when they reach 18. Sometimes it gets even harder. But if you reared them properly, then they're going to be a delight to you and to others. So much for fathers this morning. Now we're going to press on with our occupation with Christ, which is the ninth floor of the divine domain. This is the next to the top floor. We're just under the penthouse, and we've recognized already that occupation with Christ is something that does not come uh, automatically. There's a lot that precedes it before you reach that point. Here is a definition of occupation with Christ, just in case you missed it. Occupation with Christ is personal love for our Lord Jesus Christ through maximum doctrine circulating in the stream of consciousness of the heart by means of the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, that may seem like a mouthful to some, but most of you should already have enough doctrine under your belt where you can follow that all the way through. It's a personal love for Jesus Christ. It goes beyond just the fact that you appreciate what He has done for you, that He paid the ultimate price. Furthermore, He stepped out of the glories of heaven, which He created. He created the heavens and the earth. In fact, everything that was created was created by Jesus Christ. He was worshipped by untold numbers of angels. He had glory and splendor, and yet he became a man, lower than the angels, and went to the ghastly horrors of the cross in order to save you and ourselves from the penalty of sin. That in itself would be enough to worship him, adore him, love him, and to be occupied with him. However, this occupation with Christ goes beyond just the soteriological aspects of our spiritual life. It involves every single part of our life, especially with regards to our spiritual life in every aspect that there is. And it comes through maximum doctrine. You don't get to this point to where you're thinking about Christ. In fact, your thinking is like Christ. Because you have spent a lifetime, devoted yourself to the Word of God, growing in grace, where God is able to change you into the image of His Son. It's not a perfect image, but it is a likeness. It's done by means of the filling of the Holy Spirit. We can't do this under our own power. We always depend upon God's grace and the Holy Spirit to accomplish this. We went through Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. If you turn your Bibles there, we'll complete this. We only have a phrase or two left. Hebrews chapter 12. 
We noted that Hebrews chapter 11 is the heroes list. These are the great heroes that the Bible lists who, by faith, were able to overcome, endure to the end, and do great things. And that's why this starts with therefore, with that in mind. If they can do it, we can do it. It was God that enabled them to do it. It's God who enables us to do it. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, this is referring to those great believers in Hebrews chapter 11. But some of us are fortunate enough to have some spiritual hero heroes that are liter literally surrounding us. Some of them are in this church. They make great examples. Certainly those listed in chapter 11 do. Let us also lay aside every encumbrance. Encumbrances are distractions. That's the big enemy of the Christian life. It's so easy to get wrapped up in the details of life that your life consists of nothing but just details and it squeezes God right out of the picture. You have to fight for time. You, I don't like the idea or I don't like to use the word commitment, but that really is a proper word for a person that is going to reach that ninth floor. He has to be committed to his spiritual life and do the things that are necessary in order to get to that ninth floor. Uh, most of the time, that is fighting for time. Everybody wants a piece of your time. And it's easy to make excuses and just keep putting the intake of doctrine and spiritual matters on the back burner. But they should be number one. And sometimes we have to just say, we have to draw a line in the sand and say, that's it. I'm not going to give my time away anymore. I'm going to make time to study the Word, to pray, to concentrate on Jesus Christ. And so when you do that, you don't let these encumbrances, these distractions, uh, take hold. Then it says, in the sin which so easily entangles us. I think that we looked at that before. It could be the uh, weakness in your old sin nature. There's area of strength and area of weakness. Area of strength produces human good. Area of weakness is a particular sin that you have a propensity of committing. But I think what it is, is lack of faith. Because in chapter 11, every one of these people, it says, it links what they did to faith. So many times, the real culprit in our life, why we're not executing God's plan, is because we really don't believe. That's the sin which so e easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Spiritual life is not a sprint. It's a, it's a race of endurance. A lot of people treat it as if it was a sprint. People who are believers even sometimes, rarely darken the door of a church 
and you don't have your mind transformed, which is what we need to have, by coming to church every once in a while. We meet here corporately three times a week. I actually teach four times a week, the young people's class involved in that, but even that's not enough. Every single day, you're in a spiritual battle. See, people don't think that they're in a spiritual battle, battle because all they are concerned with is what are the issues that they have to face that particular day. What is that? Details. They have, we all have to handle the details of life. But what happens when you start getting some spiritual dynamics in your soul, when you start understanding what life is really about, you'll recognize that there is a, a, a level, a higher level than the details, and that is what the life is really about, not just the details. It's when you start thinking and applying the doctrines and principles that you've learned from the Word is when the ball game really begins. That's when you start understanding that it's not the details, but the spiritual decisions that you make about those details that really matters. And of course, you have to know doctrine in order to do that. But it's a race. I remember last Sunday, some people laughed when I said some believers are like the horses that are in the in the racing bin, whatever they call that thing. What do they call it, Kathy? Okay, starting, starting gate. Um, you're in a race. They're all in there, and they blow the whistle, and they all open. They all lunge out of there, and some, uh, some believers are just, you know, they're just looking around. Oh, well, this is a nice, this is a nice shoot here. And they mosey and saunder around, look around, and they don't even know that they're in a race. But that, doesn't, that does not alter the consequences for not knowing it. Not only are they not going to be rewarded and decorated, they're not going to have the privileges and opportunities that many have for all eternity. They're going to be ashamed at the judgment seat of Christ, and they're going to live a life that is full of confusion, anxiety, fear. So what we're talking about is very important. You have to run it with endurance. I can't tell you how many people have come to this church, and this is typical for every church. People come and they get all fired up for Jesus. And you see them for about a month or two, and the next thing you know, they're gone. Well, maybe they moved away. Maybe they went to another church. But a lot of times, it's all an emotional zeal with no substance to it. And that's a sprint. But the Christian way of life is a long-distance run. Have you ever noticed when they line up to do a marathon or, or when they line up to do a, a four-mile or even a mile run, they don't get in this down in, all hunkered down in the, in the uh, starting blocks and you know, where they can really leap out real fast? They start out standing up. They kind of turn sideways. They're all just kind of standing there. Why is that? Because who cares what the first 50 yards is like? I mean, 
What if, wouldn't it be funny? I'd like to see this one time. Have all the runners there and one guy in the front in the starting blocks. You know, starting blocks are where actually they're blocks. And you get down and you have your feet there. So when you, whenever they blow the whistle, shoot the gun or whatever, whenever they start, they have something to push against and they can really fire out fast. In fact, I think if I ever entered a marathon, that's what I'd do. I'd want starting blocks. And whenever they blow that whistle, I'd give it all I got for 50 yards. And then I could, I could uh, crow to my grandchildren. Oh, yes, I ran in that marathon. I was ahead for a while. Right out there in front. <laughs> well, that's the way a lot of believers are like. The ones that I just described, they come for a few times and they get all uh, worked up about it. And the next thing you know, they're gone. We have to realize there are going to be highs and there's going to be lows. There's going to be victories and there's going to be defeats in our spiritual life. But we've got to keep on keeping on because the survivors are the overcomers. They are the ones that are going to be rewarded and decorated. It's not a smooth ride for anyone. I don't know what your particular issues and problems are, but I know you have them. Your brand may be different than mine or someone else's, but we all have them. If you don't have the spiritual dynamics to handle them, then it's time to learn them. It's time to get with it. We still have time. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Jesus is invisible to us. I'm not going to ask you if you ever saw Jesus literally, because I'm always afraid some hand is going to shoot up, and then I have to deal with that. None of us have seen Jesus literally. Not yet. We will. But the way we see Jesus now is through His Word. The Word of God. And we fix our eyes on the Word, the written Word, until someday we see the living Word. For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross. Well, that last phrase we didn't even get to, and I'm just going to summarize it. For the joy set before Him. He endured the cross. That's not saying that there was any joy in the cross. In fact, it says that he despised the shame of it. But he was able to endure it because he was looking ahead of that. Of course, Jesus Christ had a personal sense of eternal destiny. And he could see the joy that was set before him. He redeemed the entire human race. Or at least made redemption possible. Sin is no longer the issue because Christ took care of the sin problem. Now, I say that in a soteriological way. Sin is still a problem, but sin is not what keeps a person from heaven because Christ took care of that sin. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. So no one goes to hell for their sins. They go to hell for rejecting the free gift of salvation offered through Jesus Christ. So he saw the joy. He knew what he was doing by becoming the substitute for us and being that sacrifice. 
I have more to say on this, but with the remaining time, I wanted to to give you something that I was uh, prepared for this morning. And there's a few points here that I'm going to go over and then we'll be done. If you're taking notes, this is what this is going to be about. Fellowship with God versus fellowship with people. Fellowship with God versus fellowship with people. Occupation with Christ is having fellowship with God, by the way. It's thinking about God. It's thinking about Jesus Christ, who is God, the God-man. I was thinking about this and developed some points, so I could put them on the board, but I'll make that av- these notes available to you if you want them. So here's point A under fellowship with God versus fellowship with people. Fellowship with God is infinitely more important than fellowship with people. Fellowship with God includes prayer. You know, every time that you pray, you're having fellowship with God. You're talking to God. He talks to us through His Word. When you sing hymns, you're having fellowship with God. I hope that you think about the words when you sing hymns. We don't sing a lot of the more liberal music, I guess you could call it, that some do. It's more like chants. There's no doctrine in them. We sing songs, hymns, that are honoring Jesus Christ, and a lot of them teach doctrine in the songs themselves. And I hope that you just don't turn your mind off and you're just looking at the, the hymn book and singing a bunch of words. I hope you're thinking about it. Some songs can inspire. But I have to tell you, sometimes even in this church, the, sound, the songs sound pretty uninspired. Now, it might be that you don't know the song. It might be that you don't particularly... Uh, Maybe you're not fond of that song. But every time you open that hymnal and you're singing a song, it's fellowship with God. If you're thinking about the words, if in your heart, in your soul, what you're thinking is appreciation and gratitude towards the Most High. If that's what's going on when you sing the song, then that's fellowship with God. I just came from a, a church last week that had a hymnal. Everything was read out of the hymnal, and it was just rote. You could tell it. If you're thinking about the song and the lyrics, and you're thinking gratitude and appreciation to God, and this is your way of honoring Him and worshiping Him and singing to Him, then it ought to sound like it. And I don't care whether you can sing or not. We have wonderful musicians here. They'll keep you on tune. Well, I mean, on the beat anyway. <laughs> Maybe you can't sing the tune. Maybe you can't stay on tune. But God does not... He's interested in what is in your thinking. And when you're singing hymns, I don't think that you can have 
really a tremendous amount of appreciation and joy and respect and thanksgiving and honor to the Lord if you're just going to just monotone. Remember that when we sing. Because that's having fellowship with God. Another way we have fellowship with God is, of course, learning and applying doctrine. Right now, if you're tuned in, if you're concentrating, you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you're having fellowship with God. And the last one is thinking divine viewpoint. There's only two kinds of, of viewpoint, folks. Human viewpoint and divine viewpoint. And they are as far removed as the sky is above the earth. One is excellent and the other stinketh. Point B. Fellowship with people requires toleration and unconditional love. Fellowship with God doesn't. You ever thought of that? I don't care who you're sitting beside. I don't care who you know, whether family, friends, or whoever they may be. They take a certain amount of toleration. Some take more than others. But when you're having fellowship with God, there's no toleration on our part. How about that? That's a great fellowship there. Point C. You can't always have fellowship with people, but you can always have fellowship with God. Have you ever had something happen and you just... Maybe you're frightened, maybe you're angry, maybe whatever it might be, and you're trying to get a hold of some friends so that you can just pour it all out on them, and they're not around. They don't answer the phone. What, what do you do? Well, how about going to God with it? They can't do anything about it anyway. Uh, well, yeah, you know, you're having woes. Uh, sorry about that. Well, tomorrow's another day. Well, well thank that's a big that's a big help. But when you pour it out to God, you have His promise. That when you put it in His hands, it's a lot better than putting it in all states' hands. You ever seen the hands? You know, are you in good hands? Every time I see that, I said, "Yeah, but it's not." And it, you know, maybe that's a good company, uh, Allstate. I have no idea, and that's a good slogan. But I always think, and you know what? I, that's by the way, that's a divine viewpoint. <laughs> that's fellowshipping with God when you can make connections like that. We're in excellent hands. Why not take it to Him? Point D. Fellowship with God is always inspiring, fulfilling, informative, and encouraging. Fellowship with people sometimes can be a disaster. Can it? You try to have fellowship with them, and the next thing you know, the claws come out. You're offended. Point, uh, well, this is point D again. This is a double D. Fellowship with God demands divine viewpoint. Fellowship with people, uh, with people doesn't. You understand what that means? If you're going to have fellowship with God, you've got to be thinking on a spiritual plane. You have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But that's not so when you have fellowship with people. 
And when you don't have divine viewpoint and you're trying to have fellowship, sometimes that fellowship can be pretty shallow. Point E. Human viewpoint leaves God out of your life. That's one of the best, I think, descriptions of human viewpoint. It just leaves God out of your life. Have you ever lived an entire day and not thought about God? Not ever had any fellowship with Him in any way and never thought about Him? You know, sometimes just appreciating what He has created is having fellowship with Him. You might go outside and look up at the sky and see what the weather is like because you want to go fishing, you want to go golfing, or you're going to have a party and you're wondering if, the, if it's an outside party. The things might be going through your mind. There's, there's no fellowship with God there. But if you go outside and you look at the sky, you see a sunset, or maybe at night you see the stars or whatever, and you are in awe of the Creator and you're thinking, what a wonderful God we have. Every evening and every morning He can paint a palette across the whole sky for us to appreciate. And people look at it and they're worried, well, I'm five minutes late, and they take off. Human viewpoint leaves God out of your life. Now, if you hadn't taken any notes up to this point, that's fine. But I want you to get this one. Either get it up here or get it in your notes, one way or the other, because this is in bold. It's shadowed, meaning it's bolder. I would have put it in all caps, but I didn't have room. Here it is. You are either occupied with Christ... Or you are preoccupied with self. That's your choice. You are either occupied with Christ, or you are preoccupied with yourself. Point G. Human viewpoint makes you miserable and others as well. You ever think of that? When you're thinking human viewpoint, you can recognize it because it's characterized by arrogance, selfishness, self-righteousness, and self-centeredness. Did you hear all the selves in there? You know, it wasn't until last night that I noticed that selfishness has self in it. I was looking at these notes and I said, hmm. Well, I'm describing human viewpoint. That would be self-righteousness. That would be self-centeredness. That would be self-ishness. It's all about self, human viewpoint. And you not only make yourself miserable when you have human viewpoint, you make other people miserable also. If you don't believe it, just ask them. The next time you're on a toot... You know what a toot is, don't you? I better define that. That can be have a lot of descriptions there. It means that you're not filled with the Holy Spirit. It means that you're angry. Uh, you don't care about other people. You might be a bit uh, boisterous. You might... There's a lot of things that you do. You're just uh, on a tirade. How about that? Maybe that will communicate 
Okay, point H is what we're going to close on, and it has 12, 12 sub-points on it. <laughs> but they're quick. Human, vo- uh, human viewpoint can be characterized by the following. Now, the reason that I'm, I'm focusing on human viewpoint, which is normal, this is what naturally comes out of us. It's, it's designated as human viewpoint because we are human, I believe, most of us. So, this is what comes out of us naturally. It's normal for us to think this way, to think the other way takes some training, it takes some doctrine, it takes a change that we'll get into next time. Okay, point number one. Does everybody have their steel-toed shoes on? Huh? Okay, here we go. Number one. Now, this is how human viewpoint, which you can't have occupation with Christ. And I said human viewpoint stinketh. It's all about self. And these are some of the things that characterize it. Point number one, arguing with others, even about things that don't matter. Now, I'm sure no one here is guilty of that, but you might write it down just the same. There has been bloodletting over such things. There have been people who have been shot and killed over a glass of beer. Who's going to pay for it? Such nonsense. Two, intolerance of others, of other people, and their opinions. Not only are you intolerant of other people, you're not even tolerant of their opinions. Now, let me tell you something. Everybody is entitled to their own opinion. Now, their opinion might be wacko, it might stink, it doesn't matter. It's their opinion. What are you trying to do to take away their opinion? Someone says, well, I believe it's so-and-so, so-and-so. Well, you can't have that. You've got to have the whole world thinking just like you do. So it's your job. God has assigned you as monitor of the world, and everyone has to think exactly the way you do and have your same opinion. So you're going to straighten them out. That's the intolerance of people and their opinions. You know, we all offend each other. Your friends, your family, your husband, your wife, your children, your parents, all we do is just spend enough time with someone and they're going to offend you. But human viewpoint isn't going to tolerate any of that. Point number three. An attitude of revenge, getting even with people. So when they have offended you and they, you don't tolerate, you don't let it go, you're going to get even. You know the old saying, don't get mad, get even. Well, there's been times when I got mad and tried to get even too. I tried to do both. Now that's really smart. Number four, hypersensitivity about self, insensitivity towards others. Some people just, you don't even mean it. You're trying to, sometimes even trying to give a compliment. And people can take it wrong because they're hypersensitive. But, insensitive towards them. You can really say something ugly towards someone and you expect them to overlook it. But when they say something that they didn't even mean to be unkind, but you took it that way, well, 
There's going to be war. Number five, consistent complaining about people and things. Oh, that one hurt, didn't it? Huh? I don't want to know this, but I'm just going to, so, so you'll ask yourself in your own mind, when was the last time you complained? <laughs> uh, this one pretty well was a shotgun blast and got us all, didn't it? Number six, thoughtlessness and bad manners. People are just thoughtless of other people. I've seen it a thousand ways. When there's uh, maybe just a, a certain number of chairs, and there's some of the best and most comfortable chairs, you're at someone's house, maybe you're just having a conversation, you're watching TV or whatever, People go in to sit down. Do you rush to get the best chair? Hmm? Or do you kind of wait, stand back a little bit and let everybody maybe motion and maybe someone's older or has a bad leg or something? Well, won't you take this chair? Do you do that? Or do you just run and get, pop your bottom right in the front wherever the best chair? And manners. What happened to Manners. Especially for young people, manners are just about non-existent except for homeschool kids. Some kids that go to private school still have manners, but it's an uphill battle for the parents. They're not teaching manners in school anymore, for my, not that I'm aware of. See, manners and thoughtfulness go hand in hand. Number seven, lack of gratitude is a characterization of human viewpoint. It's like you owe me. In fact, the whole world owes me. The reason it owes me is because I'm the center of the universe. Everybody was created to be at my beck and call. That's the way we all get from time to time. But lack of gratitude. You know, it's so easy just to say one word, thank you, isn't it? Just thank you. That means everything. And yet it's not... And it's not automatic. A child has to be taught to say thank you. Boy, I was taught. You give little Johnny a cookie. What does he do? Huh? Get out, huh? No, that's... And what's the parents? The parents are just standing like, like I'm brain dead. I don't know what's going on. My child is an oaf. I don't know how it happened. How about saying, uh, Johnny, what do you say? Thank you. Well, i got to press on. Um, number eight, never admitting you're wrong. You ever know anybody like that? That's human viewpoint. Listen, we all make mistakes, every single one of us. That's how we learn. Some people think, well, being successful means you never make mistakes. No, being successful means you learn from your mistakes. We all do it. It's just arrogance to think that you're special. Number nine, quick to judge and criticize. See, that goes with lack of toleration. How quick are you to judge someone or criticize them? Number ten, depending on self and others rather than depending on God. Number 
They look for other people to give them solace, to encourage them. And sometimes that works, and sometimes, a lot of times, it doesn't. We should go to God first. Number 11, a dependence on flattery to satisfy approbation and lust. Depending upon flattery to satisfy approbation and lust. Approbation and lust is an inordinate desire that people like you. And rather, uh, rather than learning and applying God's Word and leaving the promotions to Him and leaving the praise to Him and the rewards and so forth, people go and they won't, they won't, they'll do anything in order to have people say nice things about them because they have what's called approbation lust. They don't care about pleasing God. They just want the approbation from other people. Number 12, this is the last one. Boasting and taking credit when things go well, but blaming others when they do not. You know what I'm talking about? When God pours out His grace on someone and they get a promotion, everything is going well, uh, there's, they have good health, He's prospered them in their business, whatever it may be, and rather than saying, thank you, God, and going around to everyone and say, how wonderful God is. Look how gracious He's been to me. It's no, look what I've done. You know, pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. Well, I'll tell you what I'd like to do with those straps or what God would like to do with them. If you're wondering what I mean, I'm talking about putting, the, putting it across their bottom. Yeah, they boast when everything goes well, but when something goes wrong, when things aren't going so well, they throw a big pity party. They are full of self-pity and blame. It's somebody, it's everybody else's fault. It's never my fault. Now, that's the, 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 the dirty dozen there. And that's really a very short list of characterizations of human viewpoint. And the reason I'm giving you these is because I want you to have fellowship with God. I want you to be occupied with Christ. And when you recognize these things in your own life, you need to rebound. You need to acknowledge them to God so that He can forgive you of those things so that you can have fellowship with Him. Because there's nothing like it. It's great. It's fabulous to have fellowship with God anytime you want to. You can't have fellowship with anybody anytime you want to. Don't call me at three in the morning and say, "Hey, I want to have some fellowship," because you're going, something you're not going to get is fellowship at that time. But you can God at any time. Isn't it wonderful? He has the answers. He loves you more than you love yourself. And yet, this doesn't come automatically. It takes all that groundwork of the first eight floors to get to that point. We'll continue this next time. Let's all bow our heads right now. Close your eyes. If there's anyone here that is not sure whether they're going to make it to heaven or not, they might think, I don't know whether I'm good enough or not. I can tell you for sure you're not. No one is, never will be. Jesus Christ was the perfect man. He was the God man. He was your substitute on the cross. He paid your penalty that you deserve, which was Eternal separation from God. He was buried. 
He rose again and now offers eternal life to anyone who will trust Him and Him alone for it. For in that moment, which you can make it right now, a decision to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are born again. You become one of God's family members. Your ticket to heaven is guaranteed, but now the issue is, what are you going to do with the time between now and the time you check out? Hopefully you will go all the way up to the tenth floor of the divine domain where you can glorify God. And what a trip. Father, we thank You for this opportunity to fellowship in Your Word. We pray for the fathers out there that they will hold fast, that they will put their homes in order if they are not, that they will be fair, they will be just, they will be loving, kind, tender, that they will take You as their example. There are some who did not have good fathers, but they always have the opportunity to have fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So we pray that you will help us to continue to run the race of endurance and look forward to that great prize. For we pray it in Christ's most high and holy name. Amen.